When you think about God, what are the things that come to mind when you hear the word God? Do you think immediately religion or morality or boring or lack of fun or other such categories in that direction? Or do you think perhaps in a different direction Things like creator, awe-inspiring, almighty, holy. What is the first thought that comes to your mind when you hear the word God? J.I. Packer, in his uh, classic book, Knowing God, uh, writes the following words. When the person in the church, let alone the person in the street, uses the word God, the thought is rarely of divine majesty. And I thought to myself, is that true? Would that be true of us? When, when, when we hear the word God, the first thing that comes to our minds would be thoughts like divine majesty. Well, I don't know where you are this morning uh, in regards to this possible question, but This morning, I invite you to open God's Word to a passage from the book of Revelation, to chapter 4, that takes us into the throne room of God, where John got to see God on his throne. Revelation chapter 4, it's one of the few passages in the entire Bible where we get to hear a personal testimony from someone who was able to see God on his throne and yet live. This morning, I invite you to open God's Word to Revelation chapter 4. As you open God's Word, uh, if you are visiting us as a congregation, we are uh, working through our way uh, through the book of Revelation. Uh, We have taken a break from it for a while, but we're back into it. And uh, this morning, Lord willing, we are going to go through this chapter and we'll continue in the next few weeks to work through this book. But here is God's Word for us this morning. Revelation 4.1. After this... I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. 
And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. This is our word, the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's our, our word to hear and ponder upon. Would you join me in prayer? Asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word for our hearts. Father, we are privileged. We're privileged to hear of what is happening around your throne. We're privileged to hear this revelation that you have given to John. Lord, we're humbled that we get to expound on it. Lord, we are humbled because we recognize that we cannot make adequate sense of it unless the Holy Spirit enables us to hear well. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would do that for us this morning so that we might be drawn to the awe-inspiring majesty of your great existence and reign. Father, we pray this for the glory of Christ, for the majesty of your name. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We are back in the book of Revelation. We have taken a break uh, from it uh, before uh, the Christmas season began. We are continuing today our journey through it. Since we took a break from it uh, for such a long time, it may be helpful for us to remember briefly where we've been and where we are going in this book. This book began unfolding uh, with John having a vision of Jesus, the exalted Christ in We saw that in chapter 1. Jesus commanded John to write a book of all that John would be able to see. And uh, Jesus commanded John to send this book to seven churches in Asia Minor. And each of the seven churches also got a personal message, a personalized message, which though was for each of them separately, it was also for all the churches to read as well. Two of the churches received only encouragement. One of the churches received nothing but discouragement and critique. And the other four churches received a mixture of both things that were going well and things that Jesus wanted to correct uh, in those churches. Uh, Surprisingly, the church about which the Lord could say nothing positive, the church which received only criticism and correction, received an astounding promise. That those who conquer will sit with Jesus on his throne just as he sits with his father on his throne. That's how Revelation 3 ended the letter to the church in Laodicea. Well, in chapter 4 and 5, we get to see exactly that. The vision of God's throne. In chapter 4, uh, we see a focus of, of God's throne and God sitting on his throne. In chapter 5 we will see that someone else is sitting on the throne of God, a lamb. 
How did John get this vision of God's throne? Well, the short answer is Jesus invited him on a tour. Jesus showed up to John and said, John, come up here. I want to show you what will take place. After this, says Revelation 4, 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Who is this voice that, that he heard like a trumpet? If you go back to one, chapter 1, verse 10, the voice John heard, which was like a trumpet, was the voice of the exalted Jesus who appeared to John in the midst of the seven lampstands. After dictating the messages to the seven churches, the same voice says to John, Now come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. And chapter 4 marks a a new section in the book of of Revelation. It's the longest section of the book. It's a section that describes 21 judgments that God plans to bring upon the earth because of the dwellers of the earth have followed the dragon and the two beasts. Jesus invites John to come and see what must take place. And what must take place after this is three cycles of seven judgments that God is about to pour on the earth. And you do the math, three times seven is 21. These 21 judgments start with chapter 6 and we will complete it in chapter uh, 16. But the unfolding of what is to come, before we get to see what is to come, the, the beginning of this unfolding of the 21 judgments have their starting point in the throne room of God. In other words, all that is about to to happen will only make sense if we start with the throne room of God. If we are to make sense of why would God bring 21 judgments against the earth, we must first understand who He is, what He's like. And that is the purpose of chapter 4. To give John and us a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God. This passage, this chapter, chapter 4, could be divided in two big parts. Uh, And if you like taking notes, the two big parts will be what John saw and the second, what John heard. It's both seeing and hearing that will help us see the majesty of God. And under each of these two major parts, there's going to be some sub-points. In the first part, what John saw, we're going to see seven elements. And in the second part, what John heard, we're going to see four parts. So uh, together, uh, we are looking at quite a few points this morning. What God is like. What John saw. There are seven elements that John saw in this vision when he was taken up to the tour of the throne room of God. These seven elements describe something about God. So when we look at these descriptions, don't think they're just random elements to prick our curiosity. Let's look at what John sees. The first thing he sees is a throne. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. John saw a throne, and and when he looked closer on the throne, he realized the throne is not empty. The throne is occupied. Someone is on the throne. This may not be a big deal to us, but to see a throne that is occupied meant in ancient times kingship, dominion, authority, power, sovereignty. It meant someone is in charge. 
And this is the first point we, we see in, in, in what John saw about God. When he saw a throne, what that meant about God is God reigns. He's on the throne. The image of a throne appears in this book many times. Actually, in all of the New Testament, the idea of a throne shows up seven, uh, 62 times. Of the 62 times, 47 of them shows up in the book of Revelation. That means if you have the, the appearance or the, the reference to a throne four times, three of the four times, it's in this book of Revelation. Revelation cares, displays reality to this picture of who is in charge, which kingdom is truly the ultimate kingdom. Revelation portrays our existence as belonging to a kingdom. We're creatures called to relate to our creator as our king. But Revelation tells us that the reign of this creator has been challenged by the dragon, by that ancient serpent who desires to deceive the nations so that he would reign over the nations of the earth instead of the creator reigning over them. This is a drama in which we find ourselves. The effect of sin in our world is that the whole world has been corrupted to follow and to belong to the enemy of God's reign. Friends, that is why it is so natural to us to act as if we are enemies of God. We don't have to learn that inclination. We naturally take that inclination. We ignore God's reign over us. It doesn't come naturally to us to, to seek Him. It doesn't come naturally to us to follow Him. It doesn't come naturally to us to love Him and to delight in Him. Why? Because our hearts, our natures have been corrupted so that now we are repulsed by the notion that God reigns over us. One of the messages of the book of Revelation is that God is coming back to take His kingdom from the reign of the beast. He's coming to take back His kingship over this world. So the image of the throne is the right way, is the most appropriate way that, that, that John gets to see when he's taken up to heaven. The first thing he sees is a throne. A throne occupied by God, symbolizing God's sovereignty. God does not exist apart from His kingship. God does not exist apart from His kingship. So to speak about God is to speak about Him as a king. No wonder the first image that, God's, that John sees of him is sitting on a throne. The description of God on the throne reminds us of, of what Isaiah saw. Isaiah is one of, the, one of the few ones who has also been able to see uh, the throne room of God. And Isaiah, remember how he described his experience in the year that King Uzziah died? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Sometimes people have the desire to see God. And they, they might say, oh, if I could see God, I wonder if they might be surprised to hear that actually people have seen God. Isaiah saw God. John saw God. And they told us what he's like. He is sitting on a throne. But I wonder if the people who want to have a a picture of seeing God might be surprised to see all the signs of His reign and of His kingship. Friends, the desire to see God but not embrace, embrace His kingship 
is foolish. It's rather to, to desire to embrace a picture of our own liking and making about God. Embrace God. See Him. What do you see first? His reign. He is on the throne. Second, a second thing that, God, that John sees about God is that God is preciously glorious. God is preciously glorious. When John, John describes the one sitting on the throne, we might look with great expectation, wondering, okay, I am ready to write down everything that John can tell me of what God is like. Tell me the descriptions, how tall he is, how big he is. Tell me what, what he is like. Tell me, does he, does he have one head, ten heads? What is he like? You're getting ready to, to, to jot down the descriptions of God. And all that John tells us is that he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. That's all we get. You mean nothing else? Does he have legs? Does he have uh, hands? Does he have a body? Tell me more. And all John can say to you and me and us is he had the appearance of the glory of precious stones. Jasper and Carnelian are precious stones. It's as if John is saying, I saw the one on the throne. I can't tell you of any physical appearances. I don't have a category for it. The closest I can come up with is to tell you that he is like the precious stones. Making this comparison is a way of describing the majesty and the glory of God. If we keep reading John's description, we get a second glimpse of what John sees around this throne. He saw a rainbow around God's throne. In verse 3, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Another comparison is with another precious stone here. This time, John's, John sees the, the rainbow, and, and people, some think the rainbow might remind us of, of Noah and the sign of the covenant. That's possible, but it's probably less likely. It's just more natural to see this. There's so much light coming out of the throne. There's so much light that it's reflected through this rainbow around the throne. And even this rainbow, it's not just the colors of the rainbow. It looks like an emerald. The point here probably is, and I say probably because we just don't know. These are just some, some speculations of what this probably could mean. But it's probable that the rainbow is another layer of showing the, the multifaceted richness of the glory of God that emanates from the throne, from the one who's sitting on the throne. So to say that even this rainbow had the appearance of an emerald was to add to the weightiness of the glory that was coming out of God. That's all that John can tell us about what God is like. He is like the precious stones. The Apostle Paul described the Lord as one who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. No wonder that even John, all he can tell us is, it's like the light coming out of precious stones. Friends, do you find God precious? The people who are closest to God have found him to have the glory of precious stones. Do you find God precious? If you don't, ask yourself, why? What is it instead that you find more precious? Have you considered that if God seems boring or dull, 
to you, it is not because God is so. Rather, it's because we do not have eyes to see His glory and majesty. Oftentimes, people think that if they find God uninteresting, God must be uninteresting. Sometimes people think if if they find God to be irrelevant, God is irrelevant. Oh, this picture tells us totally the opposite. God is emanating in in such a precious light that the closest we have is to compare Him with precious stones. Here's a description of God given by someone who visited the throne room of God. His description of God is more reliable than our perception of Him and our, we who have not seen Him. If we find Him irrelevant or boring or uninteresting, that says more about us than about God. Third, a third description that John sees as he visits the throne room of God. God is at the center of all other thrones. The next detail John sees in the heavenly throne room is 24 other thrones around God's throne with 24 elders on it. It's unclear who these 24 elders are. They could be angelic beings who represent God's people. Uh, we, We don't know. These thrones, however, represent God's royal council and those who reign with God. Uh, Their white clothes uh, probably represent their purity. Their crowns represent a delegated authority that God grants them to represent God's reign. What's important about these 24 thrones is that God is in the middle of of them. They're not equal to God. They are God's servants. God is served by these 24 elders who have royal status. While the other thrones, while these other thrones exist around God's throne, the message is very clear. God's throne is at the center of all other thrones. There is no higher throne. A few verses later, we are told that these 24 elders, look at what they do. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they imagine, imagine if, it, if I just fell down, prostrating. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of worship. And not only that, they also do something else that's very telling. They take their crowns and they cast them down before the throne. Now, what would that action communicate to you and I? That these elders who sit on the throne recognize that there is another throne and even their authority that they might have, that they actually surrender and give it to the one who's seated on the throne in the middle. Friends, it's not merely that they take down their crowns. It's not merely that they fall down before him. We're going to hear later what they say about this one who's seated on the throne. But in the presence of this higher throne, all other crowns are taken down. In the presence of this higher throne, all other kings fall down and worship. As Paul Hoskins said, these 24 elders reveal who the true ruler is. They do so by these actions. The point of the imagery is that worship, worshiping God, is not merely a feeling or a surrender. It's also a willing submission to Him, a joyful submission to Him. Sometimes today we we might equate worship with feelings. Worship involves feelings, absolutely. There is no true worship without feelings being affected. 
But it's also true that having feelings alone does not mean that we are actually worshiping. True worship involves a surrender to God's greatness and power. People can feel emotional about worship. They can feel emotional even in worship, while at the same time wanting to stay stubborn in their own wills. And that, friends, makes worship be anything but the true worship of God. Friends, if the 24 elders in heaven take down their crowns and they bow down before the throne, why would any of us think that we deserve to keep our right to reign over our lives? Why would we think, why would you and I think that we have more grounds to hold on to our little crowns that we make for ourselves? Friends, the gospel, the gospel message is the message that the kingdom of God is near and is calling all of us to surrender our right to govern our own lives as we wish, as we please. The gospel message When Jesus began sharing the gospel, you know how Mark starts off telling Jesus' message of the gospel? He doesn't start with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. No, he says, the kingdom of God is near, therefore repent. The gospel message is a call to take down our crowns and give them to the one who deserves all our worship and all the reign over our lives. And God has done it. God is worthy of it because God has sent Jesus, His only Son, to take upon Himself the punishment, the the penalty that our rebellion, that our own reign of ourselves, over ourselves, deserves. Jesus came to, to replace the punishment we deserve for wanting to take ownership and reign of our own lives. Jesus died on a cross and God raised him up from the grave, proving that he alone is worthy to be king. He alone is worthy to reign over all creation so that all those who turn away from their desire to reign over themselves, all of them might actually turn to Christ and say, Lord, you take over. You take the reins of my life. I've tried to do it enough. You take over. Repentance and faith in Jesus involve this surrender to the reign of God over our hearts. And when that happens, God takes over. God comes in. He begins to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. That's why, dear friends, in some way, the gospel message can be and should be is often portrayed in, especially in the book of Revelation, as a transfer of kingdoms. Friends, if you do not know this Jesus who came to take over, to to bring his kingship, over our lives, in our lives, to take over our kingship of ourselves and replace it with his kingship. Friends, if you don't know this Jesus who came to do that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But don't think that following Jesus is just a fuzzy feeling. It's just a a, a one-time decision. It's just a sort of a membership on a church role, just a, a loose affiliation with the church. No, to follow Jesus, to belong to Jesus, is to be a part of his kingship, to be a part of his kingdom, to have him in your life as Savior and as King. Oh, to become a citizen of this kingdom. Paul, uh, John sees that indeed the one sitting on the throne is surrounded by other thrones, but all other thrones are acknowledging that he alone is worthy of the true reign. A fourth description of, of this God is that God's presence is also dreadful for sinful humanity. 
John sees flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. These are symbolic of the awesome power and majesty of God. Remember these pictures of of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder? Do you remember when they showed up first time in the Bible? It's on Mount Sinai, when God showed up to the people of Israel after he brought them out of Egypt. And God met with Moses on the mountain. And the presence of God on the mount, on Mount Sinai, was manifested with flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder. It was so dreadful that the people of, of God, who had just been redeemed, who have seen all the plagues uh, be destroy, uh, destroy Egypt, the people of God said, Moses, tell God to stop talking to us directly. Let him talk to you and you talk to us because we cannot, we cannot endure the dreadfulness of God speaking directly to us in this way. And here again we see lightnings, rumbling, spills of thunder. In the book of Revelation, this manifestation of the flashes of lightning, rumbling, spills of thunder will show up three more times. Each of the three times that will show up again, they're all associated with the last seven of the three cycles of plagues. They always show up when the judgment of God is about to be completed. In other words, the we, sh- we see this in chapter 8, we see this in chapter 11, we see this in chapter 16. This means that whenever we see the picture of flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of, peals of thunder, reminds us that the presence of God on a sinful earth is a dreadful reality. It should bring us a sober-mindedness to realize that God's presence on earth is not merely love and joy, but also a dreadful experience, especially, especially, if we are not ready to meet him. Especially if we are not ready to meet his righteous requirements, which we alone, on our own, could never meet anyway. A fifth thing that John sees is that God's Spirit surrounds the throne. God's seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God that come out of the throne. In Revelation, the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits of God. Here, the seven spirits of God takes the appearance of seven torches of fire. They symbolize the purifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. They also symbolize the power of God's Spirit to penetrate the darkness. Earlier in the seven letters, Jesus was described as the one who has the seven spirits of God. This shows that both God, the one sitting on the throne, and Jesus have the seven spirits that are purifying. Oh, friends, John sees that the Spirit of God surrounds the throne of God. A sixth reality that that John sees about God is that God is separate from all creation. In verse 6, there's another element that John sees around the throne room. A sea of glass. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The presence of the sea has been interpreted in a number of ways. But one of the possible interpretations of what the sea symbolizes is that it symbolizes God's separateness. It's another element in the picture that shows God's majesty. Even the gap that is created between the throne room of God and everything else, it shows up as a sea, but even the sea is like crystal. This means that God's reign, His separateness is is bright and majestic. The seventh description of God's throne room is that he controls all creation, that nothing escapes him. How do we see that? Four living creatures that 
take the picture of, of a lion, of an ox, of a human face, and of an eagle. In verse 6, we see that. It's amazing that these four living creatures receive so much detail of description, yet the one on the throne doesn't. I wish, I wish it was the other way around, right? But we don't get to do that. It's not that John doesn't have words to describe who is in this throne room. It's just that when it came to God, all John said was a comparison of two precious stones. And now we see these four living creatures, and, and we get to see a description of them quite detailed. That they had six wings, that eyes all over them, even on top, even behind, even under the wings. The fact that they had eyes all over, even under their wings, show that they are they're absolute. They have absolute alertness and knowledge. The creatures that God has around His throne have the ability to see everything. What's crazy about these four living creatures is they're the ones who execute most of these 21 judgments that God is about to enact. These seven elements communicate that God is supremely majestic and glorious. He's served by royalty. He's served by, by, by angelic beings that that execute his plans without fail. When it comes to seeing him, the closest description is that he is like precious stones. Friends, if you've ever wondered, is God worth pursuing? Let this description of God's majestic and glorious reign worm your heart to pursue him. Friends, whenever we find ourselves lured by the glamour of what this world offers us, remember how John got to see God. And the appearance of precious stones. Friends, if you're not a Christian and you wonder why would you ever consider thinking about God? Because God is majestic. More majestic than anything this world could offer us. But it's not enough simply to hear what John saw. It's helpful to hear what John heard. What John heard in heaven is the worship of God. Everything, in heaven, everything around the throne room of God engaged in the worship of God. As we look in verses 8 through 11, we're going to see uh, a few characteristics, four characteristics about the worship of God. The first one is the worship of God around the throne is nonstop. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night never cease to pray. Did you pick up on that detail? Day and night. Friends, worshiping God is not just a Sunday experience in heaven. In heaven, it's a 24-7 experience. For the living creatures around the throne, the worship of God never stops. I wonder if it ever stops for you. Do you ever think, hey, one church service a week is enough. Even that is you know, I think that, that God should be happy with me to give him that kind of time to worship him. And I can keep the rest for myself. Well, none of us say the latter. None of us say that. But I think most of us, we may not say it that way. But how often we feel that even if a service goes long, which it does right now, that somehow God is depleting us of our time, of our plans, of what we want to do. And of course, it's not just about the time we spend when we're together. It's about the way we approach our, our plans, our life, our interests, our delights, our everything. Well, you might say, well, these, 20, these four living creatures and 24 elders have nothing else to do in heaven. 
All they got to do is, is just worship God. Look, I have so much going on. If you look at my agenda, if you look at all my, my calendar, there's no way I can make all this happen. I got so much stuff even this afternoon, preacher. So would you cut it short and just let's get going? Well, friends, don't be so quick to excuse yourself. These living creatures, if we read the rest of the book of Revelation, we are told that they execute all of God's plans. They execute the, the judgments that are about to come. They, they are there to, to carry out every purpose of God. We, we don't get the details of what those are, but, but we get a glimpse of that from the book of Revelation. They are there to serve the Lord for whatever the Lord plans to do. In other words, the four living creatures serve God's purposes and execute His plans. Friends, worship. Non-stop worship. It's about that. Carrying out God's purposes in everything that you do, through everything that you experience. Friends, what would have to happen to us in our weekly lives that, so that our experience of our, our weekly schedules would really be an experience of worship day in and day out? Ask yourself what keeps you away from thinking that your entire life is a means of worshiping God. Worshiping God is not just about what you do when you gather here on Sunday mornings. It's what you do Monday through Saturday. It's what you do Sunday night. Worshiping God involves letting your thoughts and your heart think regularly of God's worthiness to receive our glory, our honor, all thanksgiving. Another thing that we see about the worship that John hears is not only it's non-stop, their worship exalts God's holiness. The four living creatures that have this alertness, this eyes all over What do they say about God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does it mean to say holy is the Lord? It means that God is completely separate from everything that is created. It's utterly separate in His perfections. He's not standoffish. His perfections are so incredible that it makes God to be utterly separate from all creation. It's His absolute perfections that make God so separate from us. To repeat that something was, um, was holy, to repeat that three times, uh, was a way of, of showing the weightiness, the importance, the emphasis. When Jesus wanted to repeat something as really important, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. But here, John hears these angels describe God Not once, not twice, three times. Holy, holy, holy. The only attribute that is repeated with this kind of emphasis in the entire Bible is the attribute of God's holiness. Now, God has many other attributes. He's just. He's perfect. He is uh, loving. He is merciful. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. But none of these attributes, none of these attributes are repeated Three times. The one that is repeated three times for emphasis is His holiness. This means, dear friends, that that God is entirely, entirely different than what we can imagine of Him. The closest ones to His throne, the one who get to see God the closest, are overwhelmed by His holiness. This means that the closest you are to God, the greater you understand and appreciate the holiness of God. I wonder if you've ever considered that your appreciation and recognition of the holiness of God 
is an indicator of your closeness to God. Today, many Christians feel that closest to God is if they feel His love and acceptance or some sort of cozy feeling. But in the Bible, the creatures closest to God are overwhelmed by a sense of His holiness. I want to encourage you, if you've never considered the holiness of God, there's a number of resources I would love for you to, to consider. One is, after reading the Bible, the, 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 the two resources I want to recommend to you is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul and The Holiness of God by J.C. Ryle. Consider immersing yourself in those, in those books. One of the reasons why I appreciate the work of Ligonier Ministries that was spearheaded by R.C. Sproul is because their purpose is to write materials that promote the holiness of God. There's a reason why God has blessed the ministry of Ligonier Ministries so much. Friends, ask yourself, is the holiness of God something that humbles you, that stirs you to worship God, or does it cause you to be repulsive towards God? The worship of heavenly creatures is nonstop because they see the holiness of God and they cannot stop worshiping Him. Thirdly, their worship exalts God's eternal existence. The worship in heaven exalts God's eternal existence. Look at verse 8. They say about God who was and is and is to come. And in verse 9, God is described as He who lives forever and ever. Friends, here's a way that you can praise God more often in your life. Whenever you encounter something that has limitations, think about your knees. Think about your elbows. Some of you are about to have a hip replacement. You know, think about all the things you experience that are limited. Think about um, the, the, the hobbies that you enjoy so much, hunting, fishing. You love going, you love starting, but then the day comes, the moment comes when you have to put it aside, put it back in the car, go back home, and get back to your boring schedule. And you think, oh, I wish I never stopped. We are creatures. What we experience is limited. And whenever you experience and are reminded of your limits, think of this. God lives forever and ever. Let a reminder of your brokenness, let a reminder of your limitations actually point your thoughts to the God who lives forever and ever. Turn your limitations into opportunities to praise God. The people, the, the creatures in heaven, praise God for he, he, He's the one who was and is who is to come. He lives forever and ever. He is eternally existent. Older saints, when your body reminds you that you're limited... Instead of letting yourself be discouraged by that, turn your thoughts to the Lord and say, Lord, my body is not what it used to be, but I praise you that you never grow old, you never grow tired, you never grow sick, you are forever and ever. Turn your experiences into opportunities to worship the eternal God. Fourth part about the, the worship of heaven that John hears, their worship exalts God because he is the creator. Look at verse 11. These 24 elders say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why are these elders, why are they saying to God, worthy are you to receive the glory, the power, the honor? And they have only one answer. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
That's all they need to know. That's all they need to remind, to remember. That's all they need to ponder upon so that they engage in this act of worship and giving all glory, honor, and power to God. Friends, as Christians, we often treat the, the, the truth of God being the creator very lightly. We skip over it quickly. We think God made us. He created all things. All right, I get it. Let's move on to deeper things that gets us more excited about God. Friends, the 24 elders, when they think about the fact that God created all things, that alone is enough to lead them into this majestic worship of God. Think about it. If you struggle with the notion of why you should seek to glorify God, why you, should, why you and I should enjoy God, uh, and, and, and ascribe all glory and, and honor to Him, not to ourselves. Why should we not pursue our glory? Why should we not pursue our delight? Part of the corruption of human nature is that now, created beings think that we deserve to pursue our glory, our honor, our power. But just remember, we had nothing to do with our birth. Just think about that. Nothing. No planning. No desire for it. Our parents had the planning and the desire, and God is the one who brought life to us. We contributed nothing to us coming into existence. Nothing. And yet we desire our glory, our fame, our name. And here are the 24 elders saying, God, you deserve it all because everything that exists, exists because you willed it. Oh, friends, when we consider why should we Think and embrace the fact that we exist for the glory of God alone because God made us all. Nothing would exist had it not been for the one God who alone decided to initiate everything and create all things. Friends, when you start sharing the gospel, how many of you start sharing the gospel with this foundation? God created all things. So often, we just go straight for, oh, God loves us. Um, we're sinners. God sent Jesus for us. I get it. It's true. But why should I even listen to all that? It's because God owns us, and therefore he has the right to demand our joyful obedience. Why? Because God made us. We are his. He owns everything. Friends, consider the reality and the, the doctrine of God being the creator. And because of that truth, because of that foundational truth, it should be enough to lead us to worship God and to give to Him all honor, worship, power, because He created everything. Jesus took John on this tour of the throne room of God to see God exalted, sitting on His glorious throne. John tells us not only what he saw, John tells us what he heard, so that we today might be inspired to understand why God is worthy of all our worship. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He lives in a light that is unapproachable and cannot be described except to say He is like the precious stones. Would you come to Him? Would you serve Him? Would you worship Him? Let's close in prayer. Father, You and You alone deserve all our attention, all our adoration, all our delight. Nothing we have or we are could be ours had, not, had it not been for you who had created all things. And therefore, Lord, we rightfully 
want to acknowledge you. You are worthy. You are holy. Father, we pray that you would enable us to see a greater glimpse of your majesty and of your glory so that we might rightfully respond to you, not only when we're gathered here in this place, but also as we, as we disperse, as we go out into the week, we pray that our hearts would worship you day in and day out. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.